Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Miller. I'm a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with sex therapist, Dr. Ian Kerner. Ian co-leads the sex therapy program at the Institute for Contemporary Psychotherapy in New York City. He writes regularly about sex for CNN, and he is the New York Times best-selling author of the book, She Comes First. His latest book is titled, So Tell Me About the Last Time You Had Sex. Ian is sort of the Sherlock Holmes of sex. He's a detective who helps people to understand the mysteries behind their sexual problems. We're going to be talking about his detective work today and the unique program of sex therapy he has created, which has helped thousands of couples to enhance intimacy and have better sex. This is going to be a fascinating conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Ian, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, Justin. It's, it's great to, to be here with you, to hear you and, and to see you. It's great to see you, too. Thanks so much for joining me. I think the last time we saw each other was in person, right before the world shut down. I had come out to New York to give a talk at your institute all about the science of sexual fantasies, and hopefully I'll be able to visit you all sometime again soon. I would love that. That was a very special day for us and really opened up a lot of thinking about erotic themes. And so we would love to have you back because as therapists, we're always trying to translate good science into good therapy. It sounds like we have beautiful marriage together then because I think there's a lot we can learn from each other. So to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about kind of how you became a sex therapist and sex writer in the first place. You know, what's the story behind how you got into the business? Sure. I didn't grow up wanting to be a sex therapist. I didn't even grow up thinking that much about, you know, being a mental health practitioner or a psychotherapist, but I did grow up thinking a lot about sex and particularly thinking about how hard it was for me to connect sexually because I, uh, Fairly quickly in my sexual history, I learned about some sexual dysfunction that I have, namely early ejaculation was a, a problem that I, I really struggled with and I, I continue to manage. You know, and back then there was no internet, there was no men's health, there was Share Heights book, there was some Masters and Johnson, some Helen Singer Kaplan, some Alfred Kinsey, but it was really fairly data driven, maybe with the exception of some Helen Singer Kaplan who delineated some of the early Masters and Johnson techniques around PE, which just did not work for me. So I think very quickly in my sexual life, I felt what I would say is sort of erotically marginalized, just sort of not really able to realize or express my sexual self. And so it really caused me to think a lot, to ruminate a lot about sex and to research a lot. So I feel like, you know, gradually with a lot of time, and we we can talk about it later today, it's relevant to my book. I kind of found my way out of sort of the traditional sex script for heterosexuals, which really revolved around intercourse. And I found different ways of expressing myself sexually and gaining sexual self-esteem and a sense of validation and identity. And that was probably the most powerful transition in my life and one that really resonated with me. And so when it came time to kind of 
shift careers as it often happens for no necessarily predictable reason. In this case, 9-11 had something to do with it. I really felt that this was my calling and, and it really spoke to me, not even to necessarily be a, a psychotherapist, but to be a sex therapist and to be sex positive and to continue some of the conversations that I'd had as a college student with other therapists, but mainly with myself and to to really create a frame for that to happen. Thanks for sharing that. I love asking that question because everyone has such a different path in terms of how they got here. And there's there's often some mix of, you know, personal backstory as well as, you know, professional interest. I think that's true, especially the more I study the history of sexology and I or I get to know people like, you know, Margie Nichols or I read some Havelock Ellis or even learn a little bit more about William Masters and certainly Alfred Kinsey. There's this real feeling that you are sort of shut in and marginalized around sexuality. And you really, the first impulse I feel is to sort of normalize in some way your own experience and voice it. And so I think a lot of people who are drawn to this work have personal histories and end up kind of becoming advocates, which is sort of what I did through my book, She Comes First. Yeah, absolutely. So since we're talking about your books, let's talk about your latest book. And as I mentioned at the top of the show, you describe yourself in this work as sort of the Sherlock Holmes of sex. So can you tell us what your approach to sex therapy is? How is it like detective work? What does that look like? Sure. Well, I think the reason it's like detective work is because very often, especially individuals and and often couples come in experiencing sexual issues or experiencing conflicts in how they want to sexually connect and express, or they're experiencing some kind of problem or issue. I tend to call it a problem. We can sometimes call it a disorder or dysfunction. I use the word problem, but very often they know what the problem is, but they have no idea why they're experiencing this problem. And I think that's probably because sexual issues are so multi-determined through different lenses, you know, biological, psychological, sociological, relational, intersectional. And there's such a, a complexity of variables at work that can inform and determine any one sexual issue. And then when you combine that with relational sex and sex with somebody else, I just think the variables become almost exponential. So people come in extremely confused as to why what's happening is happening. And and my job really at the end of a first session is to have a formulation. And I, and I say at the end of the first session, Justin, because especially with sex issues, I have found that most of the individuals and couples who come in, they haven't been at all proactive. They've not only have they waited till the last minute, they've waited five years past the last minute. And so there's a real sense of simmering and silent desperation and and rumination. And I have found individuals and couples come in wanting something out of the first session that feels helpful and hopeful and optimistic. So I think that's sort of where I developed a little bit the analogy of a detective is, is searching for the clues. And for me, the biggest tool that I've developed over the years 
is what's called a sex script analysis. And I think my version of a sex script analysis is a, li- is a little different than how the term sex scripts tends to get used sometimes in terms of the bigger, broader cultural and sociological scripts. I'm really interested. I was a drama major in college, and the first book I was exposed to was Aristotle's Poetics, which really breaks down, you know, the structure of a narrative that has a beginning, middle, and an end. And Aristotle really emphasized all of the parts that kind of create an elements that create a sense of unity. And if those parts or elements are out of place, the whole sort of becomes disturbed. So I've always, you know, being a drama major, my first career was sort of trying to be a playwright. I have always thought in terms of drama, events, scripts, structure. And my greatest tool in working with individuals and couples has been to um, ask them about the last time they had sex. Because once we really start to dig into an actual sexual event, you know, it, uh, it tells a story and there's a sequence of interactions that are psychological, emotional, relational, behavioral, and usually the sex script that underlies an event, a sexual event, is what's also reinforcing the sexual problem. So if I can help somebody to rewrite their sex script and move them towards pleasure as opposed to reinforcing the problem, then I'm I'm starting to do my work well. And so by the end of the first session, I usually like to have kind of a big picture of the sex script and kind of a preliminary formulation and an aspect of the sex script to target for change in the form of a homework assignment that's going to be meaningful. Yeah, I love this approach. I really love the book. And I really like that analogy of, you know, thinking about sex therapy as detective work. And, you know, I'm not a therapist, but I get a lot of people who ask me for sex advice. Oftentimes it's friends who will come up to me at the bar or at a party pre-pandemic and say, you know, my partner and I aren't having sex anymore. How do I fix this? And it's like, well, how did we get here? Right? And so, you know, we often have to trace back and be like, okay, what were the other things that were happening before this? How did we get there? So, so I like that way of looking at sex problems. And I think when you ask that question, so tell me about the last time you had sex, I'm curious, and I'm sure a lot of my listeners are curious about what kind of responses do you receive? You know, I'm sure you've asked this question hundreds, if not thousands of times. So what kinds of stories do you tend to hear? Well, you know, first of all, you have to remember that I'm often sitting with a couple. My practice is sort of 50% couples, 50% individuals, 50% or I'd say 60% heterosexual, 40% LGBTQ with uh, the highest percentage being gay men. And so especially with heterosexual couples, when I ask them that question, very often it's the first time they're talking about their sex life concisely, clearly, sort of explicitly. So a lot of people can be taken aback. What's always kind of funny is most people can't agree on the last time they had sex, you know, whether it was last <laughs> Saturday or, or <laughs> three weeks ago, they just literally disagree on the last time they had sex. And then I know we're in for a roller coaster because if they can't agree on the last time they had sex, yep. they're definitely not going to agree about how that event went down. 
so that's probably like kind of like the first response that I get. And it brings uh it brings a little levity into the room. I would say the next kind of it's more subtext is a little bit of almost embarrassment or shame that they know that the sex event that they're going to describe probably was lacking in some way or was overly simplistic or reductive in some way. So there's a little bit about me having to be non-judgmental, positive, and just open to bringing that in a positive way. Yeah, I think it's so interesting that you, know, you mentioned people can't even agree on the last time they had sex. I've also you know, read research papers on people who are in open relationships where one partner thought the relationship was monogamous, the other partner thought it was open. It's like, how did we get here? Like, There are so many misunderstandings that happen in people's <laughs> relationships. And then by the time they get to sex therapy, it's like, whoa, like, how did we arrive here? And I think so much of it is just there's this fundamental communication problem about sex and relationships that leads people down these different rabbit holes. And then by the time they get to a sex therapy session with you, it's you've got to step way back in terms of trying to address that. I think so. And I, I never hold that against people, Justin, you know, because I grew up, I would say in what I would call a sex avoidant home. Um, sex just wasn't really on the table was something that got talked about. Uh, I know a lot of my peers and colleagues and friends also grew up in sex avoidant homes. And many people grew up in, you know, pretty sex negative homes, but very few of us really grew up in sex positive homes. So, you know, without going too far down this path, I think from the very beginning, we're not really set up to have a healthy mirror of sexuality or a way of actually talking about it. So it makes complete sense to me that people would be utterly confused about how they're processing and understanding and communicating about their sex lives. And sex therapy is a great chance to quickly sort of expand the vocabulary to describe your experience. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with everything you said that we just aren't equipped with the tools in the first place. And if we had better sex ed, we could solve a lot of these problems before they arrived at the doorstep of a sex therapist. Now, we talk a lot about how it's important for people to understand their own sexual scripts. And do you also see value in people just at home trying to understand their own sexual script and how they can analyze it and take something out of it? So if somebody wants to do this, what kind of questions should they ask themselves and what should they be looking for in their answers? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And the book was absolutely developed for readers at home who don't have an opportunity to go to sex therapy. And I have to say, frankly, I'm also trying to communicate to sex therapists because I was trained quite traditionally in sort of models of sex therapy that really emphasize sexual history taking at the outset. And I found that I found that I accepted certain conventions and methodologies without really questioning them. And, you know, and getting a broad sexual history, you know, was not that useful to me in terms of actually helping couples, you know, or individuals with their problems. So I did want to give people tools that they could use at home. And, and I guess I would start to think about a couple of things. I would start to think about a sexual event as an event. So how did it begin? Who initiated? How was that initiation 
received? You know, what does that initiation tell you about your desire frameworks? Is one partner initiating more than the other? Is one partner getting rejected? Are both partners sort of not initiating and stuck in a rut? Again, this is sort of a chance to take, it's sort of like the slow motion replay or taking a sort of a, a magnifying glass like like a detective to things. So really breaking things down. And, you know, one thing that I've noticed about sex scripts again, especially for heterosexual couples, is that if you ask 90 to 100% of heterosexual couples, did your last sexual event include intercourse? The answer, unless there's some kind of sexual problem getting away, getting in the way of intercourse, the answer is almost going to be a resounding yes. And then you ask, well, how long did it take you from the moment of initiation to get to intercourse? And most couples will, on average, say anywhere from about three to 10 minutes. It's usually not more than about 10 minutes. Sometimes it's less than three minutes. But the point is, it's a very quick rush to intercourse. And so it's a sex script that's almost entirely dependent on one behavior or variations of a behavior, penis and and vagina intercourse. And, you know, as I was writing the book, I came across a study that I think came out of Kinsey. You're going to be much better on the research of me that looked at about 25,000 gay and bisexual men at the, by Josh Rosenberger in terms of the last time they had sex. And what I was, you know, really happily stunned by was that 65% of gay men did not have intercourse the last time they had sex, which not only sort of debunks the stereotype that gay sex somehow equals anal sex, but it really begged the question then, you know, what are they doing? And, you know, as it turns out, what was happening was sort of engaging in, you know, a repertoire of 12 pretty predictable behaviors from from kissing to manual stimulation to oral sex but that those behaviors were being put together in 1,300 different combinations. So right there you have like a limited set of behaviors and a huge set of sex scripts, right? And it's just not the case for heterosexual couples. There isn't that open-endedness. There isn't the dependency on outer course, and there isn't the variation of combinations. So this is a long way of saying that once you get past asking yourself, how did we initiate? The next question, how did you simmer arousal, I think is very important because many couples are skipping straight to a genitally focused activity. And usually one partner is getting left behind and that their arousal they're not in that kind of flow state of sort of mutually percolating arousal. So I also ask, really, how are you kind of cultivating arousal above the neck and above the waist in those early phases? So I'm really focused on psycho- psychological stimulation, mind-based stimulation, and sensual stimulation that is not so genitally focused. And none of this is rocket science, except what I would say is that I've learned that across the board now, most couples, when you look at their sex scripts, and most couples, especially couples that tend to go through long-term relationships, they tend to have like kind of usually one sex script maybe two, but it's often really just one kind of thing that they're doing. 
And that sex script is usually dehydrated of mind-based stimulation, which is where your book, actually, along with Jack Marin and Michael Bader, really got heavily featured in my new book, because I really emphasize also, not just in, in, in a sex script, to make it more than just a set of behaviors, to make it behaviors that are really sheathed and cloaked and infused with a kind of psychological life. So, so there is a methodology in the book that I think is very easy to follow and track through an entire sexual event. And I think what I do for people in the book is to bring them very simple lenses that are appropriate to be looking through at important phases of a sex script and how we all generally want a sex script to evolve. I know as therapists, we like to take the emphasis off of orgasm and we like to deconstruct the concept of sometimes what sex needs to look like. But at heart, we all do want to be able to get absorbed in the pleasure that we're having. And we want that pleasure to be a process of continued absorption that most of us would like to culminate in an orgasm, whether they're synchronous or asynchronous in, in some way. So I do kind of working off of some general models of human sexual response, try and sort of lay out the elements of a sex script and the things to be thinking about in each phase of a sex script. Yeah, and I think you said so many great things there. To go back to the study of gay and bisexual men that you mentioned, I'm very familiar with that study and I've covered it before on my blog and a lot of people are surprised by it because the single most common sexual behavior reported by gay and bisexual men is kissing on the mouth. And people are like, wait, what? There's sort of this idea, as you said, that people equate gay sex with anal sex and there's actually so much diversity there. And it's also true when you look at lesbian and bisexual women, there's an incredible amount of diversity in their sexual practices and what their sex looks like and how long they spend on it. You know, lesbians actually spend the longest on sex of, of anyone. Absolutely. And I think that there's so much that cisgender heterosexual people can learn from the LGBTQ community in terms of how they approach sex and the diversity in their sexual scripts and how long they're spending on sex. I agree. I mean, you know, heterosexuals get really caught in this intercourse discourse because there's just been, you know, going back to like sort of St. Augustine and really sort of the birth of like, you know, what Christianity, there's just been so much emphasis on reducing sex to procreative sex. And so as heterosexuals, you know, we really get left with the sort of the form of procreative sex that really doesn't tap into the substance of being relational, being recreational, pursuing pleasure. So I, I think this is a matter of just dialogue, but I, I would contend that heterosexuals, you know, are are much more limited in how they define sex and that that, that definition is is reified and reinforced at so many levels. Yeah, and since we're talking about sexual orientation, I wanted to ask you a question about how sex therapy works when you're dealing with cisgender heterosexual clients versus LGBTQ clients. Are there similarities or differences in the approach therapeutically that you take or different things that you notice, different problems that come up? What's the difference between sex therapy for a cishet audience versus LGBTQ? 
I'm going to say at a high level for me, not much, that I have a methodology that's just pretty open and, and pretty positive that almost any but person sitting down in front of me or a couple sitting down in front of me that, you know, lends itself to a conversation. You know, almost everyone who comes to sex therapy is coming with some kind of a problem you know, that needs to be addressed. You know, people aren't generally coming just to expand the horizons of an already fantastic sex life. They're really coming to address some kind of a a problem. And on a certain level, problems are kind of universal. If we're looking at orgasm issues or erectile issues or aspect of sexual function, but they're highly personalized in terms of how they're getting expressed. And everybody brings a different personal story So I'm going to say, regardless of who I'm sitting down with, kind of my methodology is the same. What I would say, again, is different about heterosexual couples, just a little different, is that if you're coming in with a problem, something that's not working the way that you want it to work and you want it to be different, it really does mean changing the sex script, which means changing how you think about sex and approach sex. And for heterosexual couples, that, that idea of going off-road in your sex script or developing a new sex script or one that doesn't just, you know, worship penis and vagina intercourse is, is much harder cognitively for a heterosexual couple to kind of process and deal with. Whereas when I am working with, you know, people of different orientations, there's just a lot more openness and flexibility. And sometimes there's a lot more colors on the palette already that have been explored in some way, if that makes sense. I mean, even thinking about being open to non-monogamy or, you know, an open relationship, again, that's more likely to be on the palate of somebody that maybe isn't cisgendered heterosexual. Yeah, and that's what I see in my own research. For example, that sexual minorities are more likely to share and act on their sexual fantasies and tend to have a bit more diversity in their sexual repertoire in a lot of ways. And I think a big part of that is because they've already transgressed the norm of heterosexuality. And so it becomes less costly to explore other aspects of your sexual self. And so I think that that Mm -hmm. is something that can be liberating and kind of opens the door to sort of more fully exploring your sexuality. Totally. And the thing you just made me think of as well is that so many people that are non-heterosexual have had to develop already a kind of resilience around their sexuality that maybe when faced with a problem encourages them to embrace a constraint or be creative about a restraint. Whereas I don't think that heterosexual couples often have that same level of sexual resilience to say like, well, here's an issue that's coming up. Let's really Let's not just keep knocking ourselves against it, trying to bust through it on this in the same way. Let's get, you know, really creative about it. And I think that that's a resilience that that heterosexual couples often don't have. Whereas if I'm sitting down with a, in a relationship and someone is trans and you know they've transitioned to some extent, you know, physically, socially, you know, already already you're tapping into a kind of resilience that's embracing a kind of diversity in terms of how you approach sex. Yeah, I think that's so true and such an important point. 
Well, we have much more to discuss, including sexual fantasies and how to talk about them. But first, quick break for a word from our sponsor. Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has Target's own technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. And we're back. My guest today is sex therapist Ian Kerner, author of the new book, So Tell Me About the Last Time You Had Sex. Now, something else you talk about in your book, Ian, is how it's important for people to understand their own and their partner's framework for sexual desire. So what are the different frameworks for sexual desire? And what do you do if you and your partner just happen to have very different frameworks? Yeah, I mean, I think in terms of frameworks for desire, I'm largely working off of Rosemary Basson and Emily Nagoski's work and, you know, all of the good work that has come out of looking at responsive desire versus spontaneous desire. So those are two frameworks I will often work with. The idea, and I don't call it really even spontaneous or responsive, but, you know, someone's ability to sort of, let's just say, metabolize a sexual cue very quickly and for that sort of sexual cue to really tie into the arousal platform in a physical way that really generates, you know, a desire to have sex that can kind of bushwhack its way through a thicket of stressors, you know, so to speak, versus somebody who doesn't quite metabolize a sexual cue in that way and maybe needs multiple sexual cues and needs more of an environment that lends itself to the processing of of those sexual cues. So I do tend to kind of work off of that framework, you know. What I find interesting in my practice and when you talk to sex therapists is there's really no gender line around, say, spontaneous versus responsive desire, whereas it seems like the research really tends to emphasize that you know men might experience spontaneous desire and women experience responsive desire. I don't find that to be you know, the case at all, but it is getting into then how do you mutually, if you metabolize sexual cues differently, then how do you get to a place where you're aligned in terms of, you know, wanting to have sex? So that's something that I definitely focus on. And, and in the book, I sort of do look at when sort of different frameworks clash and how to kind of create a common framework. I often again, emphasize psychogenic or, or mind-based arousal as a way of kind of keeping eroticism sort of in the air. You know, I think for so many couples, sex is just that. It's a sexual event that happens once a day, once a week, once a month. And it's sort of a discrete unit unto itself. And I work a lot with couples on 
what I happen to call the erotic thread, which is just sort of the thread between sexual events and, and keeping eroticism in the relationship, but decoupled from certain sexual events or sexual behaviors, like really just celebrating the erotic as opposed to, to the sexual. So I appreciate your description of all of that. And I, I really enjoyed the section of your book where you were talking about these different erotic frameworks and kind of how to get on the same page. And early in the book, I started thinking about how, gosh, when we're talking about different sexual frameworks, you know, the most common problem that gets discussed is when you have this discrepancy in your framework where you're spontaneous and desire just hits you like a brick and comes over you at a random moment versus responsive where uh, sexual activity kind of needs to begin and then desire sets in later. And that got me thinking about, well, what if you have two people who are both high in responsiveness, right? Where, you know, they don't have that spontaneous desire and, you know, so they're a match for their desire framework, but that presents a different problem. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, absolutely. So you could have two people that are spontaneous and more than likely they're not coming in with a desire issue. They're coming in with issues that are farther along on the sex script, you know, in, in some way, but they don't have a problem getting going. You can have two people who are responsive and they haven't really set up an environment to lead to the creation of arousal that would lead to the emergence of that responsive desire. And frankly, I don't think I'm going to see those couples that often unless one of them, and here's the thing too, like none of this is hard lines in the sand. What I often find, Justin, is someone that's responsive in their framework at home may find themselves spontaneous in some way out in the world or on their computer surfing the internet or in some sort of other kind of experiential kind of environment. So very often, I don't think we can really say that two people are fully responsive or two people are fully spontaneous. I think if we were to look at two people who are responsive and they're making it to my office for sex therapy, either cognitively, they've said we should be having more sex, even if they don't actually necessarily want it, but they're starting to wonder. Or one partner is realizing, hey, when I'm home in this kind of predictable long-term relationship, my desire is one way, but out there in the world, something sparked it differently. So I think our, our frameworks are incredibly changeable and flexible and mutable. They're not at all static. But I would say the framework discrepancy that I most encounter is one partner being spontaneous and one partner being responsive, and they really don't see eye to eye. So the spontaneous person is like, what happened? we used to have sex in that first year or two, or why do I always have to initiate? Why am I not desired? Why do I get rejected? Why is this person sexless? Or they're just not a sexual person anymore, and I, I am. And then you have a responsive desire person who's like, God, sex, 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 sex. It's all this person ever thinks about. Are they a quote-unquote sex addict or what happened to romance or what happened to being nice to each other or helping out, you know? So it's not just a clash in how you experience desire. It's really a clash in how you see each other relationally. 
Yeah, it's so true. And I think that the point you make about sometimes in these relationships where there's this discrepancy, the responsive partner will label the spontaneous partner as a sex addict or have a sexual compulsion or something. It's because they fundamentally don't understand the way that desire works in each person. And that can become a major source of conflict and tension. Yeah. You know, almost undoubtedly, if I'm asking a couple about the last time they had sex and there's clearly an issue with getting going around sexual frequency or warming up and both getting into the experience or one partner being left behind, then to me, what's diagnostic is we need to focus somehow on that very early phase of sort of just nurturing arousal in both partners. And I think it's important for the spontaneous desire partner. It's kind of like the spontaneous desire partner has a fast pass onto the roller coaster. Like they can just cut the line and get right on. And, but they have a partner who doesn't have the fast pass, you know, that other partner needs to wait online for a while. And so for the spontaneous desire person, look, if you have a fast pass, but you want to go on the ride with the person who doesn't have the fast pass, you're going to have to wait online. So, right, you have to like step back a little bit and and contribute to making that a fun time, sort of moving through the line and getting onto the coaster. And so I do have exercises. I call them willingness windows because they're windows of time that both partners have set aside to engage in an activity that's going to start to percolate the arousal system. And it's a willingness window because we also talk a lot about this concept of willingness, especially when there is a desire discrepancy, because there's no way that these two people are going to show up for this window of time with mutual desire. But if they each have some kind of mutual willingness, then it will happen. And then it becomes a question of, so what am I asking them to do in this willingness window? And it's usually some kind of activity that's um, either sensually based or psychogenically based. And so we talk about frameworks in desire. I find that there are also frameworks in arousal that some people just happen to be more sensually focused and in the body in terms of how they get aroused and turned on. And some people are a little more in the in the head. And it's just as you can be in different desire frameworks, I think you can also have kind of different arousal frameworks. Yeah, and I talk about something similar in a lot of the workshops that I give on sexual fantasies and how to act on them and how you know different people process sexual cues differently. They've got different sexual metabolisms and some people are just very easily excited. And it doesn't matter if the experience doesn't go perfectly according to plan. They're going to have a good time and maintain arousal. But for somebody who is very easily inhibited, right, where the, it's very easy to put the brakes on sexually, if something goes wrong, that's very likely to put them back in their head, pull them out of the moment, and really disrupt the experience. And so partners have to really understand each other when it comes to having sex and acting on sexual fantasies to help each other to have a good time if they're approaching it in these really drastically different ways. So let's talk about sexual fantasies for a moment because you know it's a topic that's near and dear to me. And I was very excited to see you talk about my work in your book. I'm honored by that, so thank you. But something I wanted to talk about when it comes to fantasies is you have this line in your book that I really like where you say that we should talk about our fantasies as our allies and not our enemies. Can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, I just think that 
people come in often conflicted around their fantasies or conflicted that kind of the fantasies that turn them on aren't necessarily congruent with the sex that they're having. Obviously, for some people, that kind of conflict can be very existential. For example, if you haven't come out and you're just with a wrong sexed partner for you, you know, but often the the issues aren't existential. We're just, um, you know, we're just sort of ashamed of our fantasies or we're, we're afraid of being judged for them. And, and I get that a lot. I get that a lot. And people often come in criticizing their fantasies. I had a patient, for example, you know, let's say who's really into uh, tickle torture and loves being um, tickled sexually and fantasizes about it and loves watching tickle torture porn, but has, you know, never acted it out. I've had patients come in who would say, well, isn't that kind of a sick fetish? Or why do I have to have like, why is that the thing that turns me on? But when you actually start to talk to them, and this this gets back into the work of Bader and Jack Marin a little bit, that fantasy and Bob Stoller, Robert Stoller, that fantasy is trying to guide that person somewhere. That fantasy is trying to get you aroused. It's trying to create pleasure. So in that way, I look at the fantasy as an ally because that fantasy may be the best guide you have, the best ally you have to get you to pleasure. You know what I mean? So like very often we're we're stuck in our sexuality, but if we turn to our fantasies, they will guide us to pleasure. And I often tell people, don't be afraid of the fantasy. Like, let it in, let it speak, let it talk. You don't, we're not going to necessarily act it out, right? You know, or jump to make it happen, but let's give that a voice because it's telling us something about your erotic personality and the erotic themes. And it's telling you something about what you need. Yeah, and I I love the way that you said all of that. I think it's so true, and it echoes a lot of the themes that I discuss in my book, that, you know, our fantasies do say something about us, and the more that we try and suppress them and run from them, the more problems that we run into. And so by finding a way to unburden ourselves of the shame and to embrace our fantasies, we can open the door to a lot of potential pleasure. And you know what you're making me think of, Justin, that there hasn't been a lot of sex positivity in psychoanalytic literature. And so, you know, as we know, going back to Freud, like fantasies were really kind of pathologized or used to represent, to to show people that they were pathologized. And I find that that's been a constant thread, even in some of Michael Bader's work, who I I love Bader. I think he's done so much great work, but he always emphasizes that fantasies connect to a pathogenic belief or this idea that there's some part of your sexuality that's stuck or, you know, and and that's why I think I, I find your work refreshing. I find the work of Jack Marin really refreshing because your fantasies can be your allies, not because something is necessary wrong but maybe there's it can just be more right you know like and so following the fantasy being a perfectly sexually healthy functional person and still allowing yourself to have a fantasy life that you follow is really important yeah and i agree with everything you said and you know i do believe that sometimes our fantasies do come from a dark place sometimes they do come from trauma that we've experienced but rather than then looking at the fantasy 
as inherently pathological, the way I like to look at it is that it can be therapeutic. You know, it's a way that people learn to cope with traumas and other negative experiences that they've endured. And so through that lens, the fantasy is ultimately a very positive thing. Absolutely. We could do a whole nother podcast on encouraging erotic themes and fantasies as a way of healing trauma. And in the book, I I think I have a a number of case studies where the most valuable function of fantasy was to enable a kind of sexual healing. Yeah. Let me ask you one more question about fantasies. In your work as a sex therapist, have you found any particularly helpful tools for helping partners to share their fantasies with one another if they've never done that before. I have. I have. I mean, you know, it's a little like when we talk about sexual behaviors, like the hand job sort of gets relegated to what left field or or right field when we're thinking about like oral sex and other things. Like I kind of feel like the talking about fantasies kind of gets, you know, pushed to the left field of like, ah, you know, but I have found the most powerful way of starting is through talking about a fantasy. And I've noticed even in my sex therapy sessions that once couples start to talk about sex in positive ways, like the temperature in the room rises, like sexual language creates heat. And so, you know, very often our fantasies, as they as they as we experience them, we experience them in the most sort of like extreme primal raw forms when we conjure them up as fantasies or that's that's the image we get from porn it's it's like the most extreme part of it but that's often the culmination of a fantasy experience that has a narrative thread that again if we're starting a sex script early in arousal i bet you a fantasy also has an origin story or goes back or has elements that are the beginning, not the end. So I sort of like, sometimes I say like, let's just step into the shallow end of the fantasy, right? Like we don't have to like get on the 60 foot diving board and go straight into the deep end of the fantasy. Let's just like, let's expand the story around the fantasy and let's go back to the very beginning. And Justin, I have three questions that I ask in every session, and we've sort of talked about two of them, which is, you know, the problem that someone is experiencing and the idea of telling me about the last time they had sex. But I always have space in a session to ask a question which is future-oriented and to say, you know, if we're to work together for a few months and let's just say we're meeting every other week with some homework in between and we get on the other side of this or things are better. Like what does better look like in terms of sex? If I'm a fly on that wall and I'm looking or listening or watching, like what am I going to see? And again, this comes back to sort of my literary roots and the idea of T.S. Eliot talking about objective correlatives in poetry, meaning that some language can be so, some poetic images can be so organically formed that they just intensely evoke emotion. And I didn't get to write about this too much in the book, but I try and create what I would call sort of the erotic correlative in session, which is I really want the couple to conjure up a future vision of sex that has a a fantasy element to it. And and by fantasy element, let's be clear, we don't have to be talking about kink or role playing i mean we could just be talking about 
the behaviors we dream about engaging in, because even a simple behavior embodies a fantasy. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I think you're so right that a fantasy does not have to be fantastical, you know? And I think when I ask a lot of people about their fantasies and I get some people who say, I don't have fantasies, it turns out that part of the reason they're saying they don't have fantasies is because they've got this idea in their head that a fantasy has to be this really out there kind of thing. It's like, no, a fantasy can just be anything that turns you on, no matter how vanilla or how kinky. And in my work, I find that there's so much value that can be had by incorporating those fantasies into your sex life, whether it's just self-accepting them and enjoying them yourself during solo play, or if it's sharing them with your partner as a way of building intimacy or using it as a form of dirty talk, or if it's mutually desired, then going the step of acting on those fantasies. And I find that the people who have that self-acceptance and who are willing to share and sometimes act on those fantasies, they're the most sexually satisfied. They're in the happiest relationships. And so there's a lot that we can gain from that. Absolutely. And I love when couples come in and there's an impasse around a fantasy or an impasse around a behavior. I love scaffolding those conversations. I think I write about this in the book. I was working with a couple where he wanted to have a threesome and she just heard it as you just want to get it on with two girls and she had had a bad experience with the threesome. But when we created some space for them to each share their experience and for him to talk about the fantasy, his entire fantasy around a a threesome really focused on her pleasure, her being pleasured by two hands and two mouths. And she just had never, you know, heard it in that way. And it actually turned her on and they didn't end up going and having a threesome, but it became part of their role playing or part of their fantasy talk repertoire. And I, I find the same things happen with sexual behaviors. Like when you ask a guy, like, why is a blowjob so meaningful to you? It's not because it's just like a wet mouth around a penis providing pressure and friction. It represents, it means something to him. It's a, it's a kind of love or a kind of power, whatever it is. So, I mean, I, I just, whenever there's that little discrepancy, it's so much fun to, to get into it and explore it in, in, in a very positive way. Absolutely. Well, we're about out of time. So thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Ian. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and get a copy of your new book? Thank you, Justin. It was great. And I think the best way to find me is still through my website, iankerner.com. I'm I'm trying to get some social media channels going, but I'm always sort of updating the website and, and keeping it current. And the book is available on Amazon and wherever books are sold. Yeah, wherever books are sold, Amazon is always important, especially if you can write a few kindly words. It's always appreciated as a writer, but it's always paradoxical because I really also just want to support the indie bookstores around the yep. corner. So I'm going to I'm going to say that it's it's available everywhere, but but go to the indie bookstore around the corner. Let's keep indie books alive. Yeah, so check out so tell me about the last time you had sex. Thanks again for being here, Ian, and thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to read and review the podcast. 
can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, for even more on the science of sexual fantasies. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.